Welcome to the Destination Gettysburg Podcast. Hi, good to be here with you, and thank you for joining me. I'm Rick Kennis, and today is our, well, this is our first episode, our first official episode of the Destination Gettysburg Podcast. And uh, as mentioned before, and as you, it's no secret, you can see right in the title of the uh, episode that it is all about a brand new museum coming to Gettysburg. Well, by the time you listen to this, it might already be open. On April 15th, 2023, uh, Beyond the Battle Museum will open up to the public, okay? Uh, And that is going to be telling the remarkable story of ordinary eyewitnesses, their extraordinary experiences before, during, and after the Civil War. It's, it's quite an amazing project that the Adams County Historical Society has undergone in preparing for this historic time. They'll have, uh, let me check here, 12 interactive exhibit galleries that will be packed with rare artifacts exploring the story of Gettysburg like you've never seen it or even heard it before. Because now a big part of this museum is caught in the crossfire. It's a completely immersive experience. Um, and we'll, we'll show you a couple of clips about that uh, towards the end of today's episode. But it is, no doubt, the museum's premier exhibit. It's an immersive experience. It uses cutting-edge technology to place visitors inside a reconstructed farmhouse Uh, during the Battle of Gettysburg. So when you go in, you'll be able to see, hear, and feel what it was like just for one Gettysburg family to be overrun by invading forces and trapped behind enemy lines. It's, I can't even put it into words what the experience is like. Of course, that's the big tease of the show. But there's also some other great things that will be talked about um, as we join Tim Smith, who is the Director of Education at the Adams County Historical Society. Uh, He'll be showing us around, looking at different artifacts and so forth, but we'll be talking about dinosaur footprints, meteorites, Native Americans, natural history, We'll also get into the Mason-Dixon line. Um, But yeah, this is just touching on some of the things that you can experience for yourself at Beyond the Battle from the Adams County Historical Society. So let's get right into it. We started our visit, if you will, at the Devil's Den display. Besides just writing panels for the museum and coming up with ideas for the graphics and stuff like that, we have little things that we've added. Like Ooh. we had to put a snake. Did you notice the snake? I did. And that's, um, that's, I guess, if, if, if I've heard many stories, but is it basically because it was Devil's Den because the snakes were named Devil? Or? Well, I put it on the wall. Oh, there we go. Same. As a child, I've heard talk of the snakes which infested the country and had their den among those huge rocks. Mm. Parties of men were organized to rid the neighborhood of these dangerous reptiles. One big snake persistently eluded them. 
They could never kill or capture him, and they called him the devil. So to Gettysburgers, that has always been the devil's den. And so that's a quote by Sally Myers, who was a local citizen who was a nurse after the battle, and she was being interviewed at the 50th anniversary, and she decided to tell the story of Devil's Den. Of course, you probably know. And and, um, what's interesting is we do not have an account predating the battle that makes mention of the place name, but we have lots of accounts right after the battle that say, oh, it was called that even before the battle by locals. So it, it appears, you know, that it, that it does get its name early on. It's just not as well known until the battle occurs and then people are using that as a descriptive name for it. We also, of course, one of our highlights in our museum for kids is going to be our dinosaur footprints. And basically the story is in um, uh, near York Springs, at a place called uh, Trossel's Quarry, which is in Latimer Township along Bermudian Creek. Um, some workmen uh, were, in 1937, were quarrying stone for a bridge on the Gettysburg battlefield. Um, and they were doing some you know, construction on various roads. But uh, while they were working, one of the uh, construction, or one of the quarriers, mentioned to the man in charge that, hey, there's some interesting looking markings in these stones. And he actually stopped work. They called in a specialist. Uh, he examined the stones. Uh, they realized they were dinosaur footprints. They called in people from the, the state. And um, you can see they, uh, uh, they cut slabs out and saved them. Now, there are a bunch of slabs. We have two. And you can see in these two slabs are one, two, three, four, five different uh, footprints that you can see parts of. But their footprints were sent to the Smithsonian. Uh, uh, the, in New York, the um, American Museum of Natural History, uh, the Carnegie Museum in Pittsburgh. If you go to the Carnegie Museum mm -hmm. in Pittsburgh, they actually have one of our slabs on display oh, okay. with a footprint with the same kind of not not as elaborate as our display. Mm -hmm. And they also, at the State um, Museum in Harrisburg, they have a slab on display in their museum. So now, it currently, the one in the Smithsonian is not on display, or in New York, I don't think it's on display, but on display, there are three different museums that have these footprints. And they're from uh, dinosaur. We're not exactly sure what dinosaur made the footprint because no dinosaur mm -hmm. bones have ever been discovered in this area to associate ah. with the footprint. But because we have other footprints in other places, we can kind of guess that it's a, um, uh, a small dinosaur. Um, and this, the, the, the dating of the stone is from the Triassic period. So okay. it's the early, it's one of the earliest types of uh, small uh, dinosaurs. My uh, three-year-old son, could uh, tell me more about this than I would ever know. Excellent. Um, <laughs> he's one of the biggest dinosaur fans in the world. Well, you know, the kids love it. Right. So, so the group of dinosaurs that ours would come from is known as um, a sauropodomorph. Okay. An early 
version of the dinosaurs that grew into the large behemoths that mm-hmm. you see that most kids really like. So it's a it's an early, smaller version of that, and it's um, uh, it was very similar to like a uh, Platyosaurus. Right. So. And if he listens to this, then he'll enjoy that. So, <laughs> yeah, he's, he's going to be very excited about touching those yes. footprints one day. And, you know, they're, they're just, we've had them ever since, you know, uh, they were donated to us um, by um, a guy, uh, Frederick Tilburg, who worked at Gettysburg National Military Park and was also an me- early member of the um, Historical Society. But they were on display in our old museum. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, now they're really featured. Oh, I should just one last thing I should mention. When you come here, uh, you'll see there's a mural of a dinosaur, the type of dinosaur that would have made this footprint. And we actually had this commissioned by a special artist who's a naturalist. And much of her, her work is all over the place in museums. Uh, um, out in, uh, she just did some stuff for a museum in Texas, and also um, her work is at the Smithsonian. Um, so I, I think it's just it's it's really good to put a identity or put uh, mm-hmm. you know a visual um, give some idea some perspective of what could have made the dinosaur footprint. Now we could go around and tell your story about mm-hmm. everything in the museum, but sure. you know it would be get probably get long and tedious. But one of one of our um, favorite things is the piece of the Mountjoy meteorite. So just to make the story simple, um, in 1887, a guy named Jacob Snyder was digging a hole in his, on his farm near two taverns, and he was trying to plant an apple tree, and he hit something, and it was unusual looking. He dug it up. Um, at first, he thought it was some kind of uh, pure iron, and that maybe he hit a, a, a you know a mine shaft, and he was going to make a lot of money selling uh, this iron out of his uh, yard. And he dug lots of holes and didn't find anything else. Immediately, his wife was like, "I think that's a meteorite." And uh, eventually, a local school teacher uh, came and looked at it and said, "Yeah, I think that's a meteorite." And so he contacted um, uh, a mineralogist from Washington, D.C. The Smithsonian came up. They wanted to buy it. The stone was about 800 pounds originally. He wanted to sell it. The Smithsonian wouldn't give him the amount of money he wanted from it. He sold it to a collector. They broke pieces off of it and sold it. The largest piece, weighing about 500 pounds, was eventually purchased by the Natural History Museum in Vienna, Austria, where today the Mount Joy meteorite is displayed. Hmm. We, in our collection here, have on loan a small piece of the meteorite loaned to us by the Natural History Museum in Vienna, Austria. One of our members went there and ask if they would give us this loan a number of years ago. It's like, come on, just give us a little piece. <laughs> yeah, sure, literally, a little piece. It's oh. a good size of the, the palm of my hand, maybe. So, so it's, it's hard to imagine that something that came from space and, you know, hit a farm in Montgomery Township is now on display in Vienna, Austria. So in the span of just doing a little 360 turn here, I can go from a dinosaur footprint 
to an actual item from outer space. Yeah. And of course, this would be older. Three point or three to five billion years old. Oh my. Yeah, you know, we do have lots and lots and lots of um, artifacts dealing with the Native Americans in our area. So we have, um, you know, arrowheads and um, banner stones and projectile points and stone axes and drills and um, grinding stones. And so we wanted to put them on display somehow. We also wanted to show how many of these items we have and put a lot of items in a display case. But we also wanted to make it educational, so we divide them up by type of artifact and we have a little explanation of what that, that type of artifact you know, might have been used for. And also we have, to, you know, we have a little general um, description of uh, what life was like at that time. So the fields along the creek systems still to this day yield um, uh, Indian artifacts. This is early settlers or okay. life on the frontier. You know, in each gallery of our museum, there are different themes that we could talk about or touch on. Mm -hmm. And in this particular gallery, um, we wanted to talk about what it was like when the areas first settled, uh, who were the early settlers on the uh, and some of the problems with early settlement. So we have stuff about uh, things about land ownership. Mm -hmm. When the people came in here, how do you actually uh, gain possession of land? Like who does it belong to yeah. to begin with? And then the uh, religious beliefs of the early settlers. We have Scotch-Irish, Presbyterians, uh, you know, Germans, Catholics, and Lutherans. And, uh, you know, we have displays on um, some of the early churches. And then, of course, you know, are we part of Maryland? Are we part of Pennsylvania? The whole debate over where the Mason-Dixon line should be. And so we put the story of the Mason-Dixon line. And in this particular gallery, um, again, one thing, uh, unfortunately, you know, since I'm doing the talking, you get to hear stories about me and what I liked. But uh, um, I wanted a Mason-Dixon marker. I, I saw that some, you know, there's places along the Mason-Dixon line um, the line surveyed between Maryland and Pennsylvania in the 1760s where the Mason-Dixon markers are missing and they've replaced them over the years. Okay. And I, I saw articles about this. So I knew that people had molds of original Mason-Dixon markers and we could probably get one. So we had uh, a Mason-Dixon marker made. Now you might know that there's a marker every mile along the Mason-Dixon line, the line between Maryland yes. and Pennsylvania. And every five miles, there's a crown stone. And that's with the seal of the Penn family and the seal of the Calvert family on the Pennsylvania and Maryland side. So this is a replica of a crown stone. And, and that side is the Penn, William Penn, and this side is the shield of the Calverts. And our border along the southern uh, border of Adams County is about 25 miles. So I think we have 25 stones uh, along our county. I could be, could be 24, I don't remember, but it's about 25 miles along the uh, southern border of the county. And uh, you know, it's well worth it if you haven't been to one to you know, find the one nearest you and visit it. 
but uh, some of them are on private property. Um, yeah. One you can get to easy is uh, uh, they call it the uh, Mary Penn Bed and Breakfast because uh, the Mary Penn Bed and Breakfast on their property there are two um, oh. Mason Dixon markers, and on the uh, Waybright's property, the, the the farm they have there, the the milk farm you can Mason Dixon Dairies I think it's called right. They have one on their property, so you can you could contact somebody and go to, to to visit one. This. On um, this particular display, we have a survey of the Baltimore Shippensburg Road as it passes from the Pennsylvania line through Littlestown and through Gettysburg and out and up through Mummersburg. And here you can actually see Samuel Geddes' tavern. So this road was laid out in 1769 and it shows the early settlers. Like at that time, Prior to the Dobbin House being built, John Carson owned a log house where the Dobbin House, you know, is now located. And here's the, you can see the crossroads, excuse me, between the Baltimore Shippensburg Road and New York, Nichols Cap Road. Now, before you enter our attraction caught in a crossfire, we have some display cases dealing with civilians uh, in the American Civil War. So, um, you know, obviously our bread and butter here at the Adams mm -hmm. County Historical Society is the civilian experience because we have a large collection of civilian accounts. And I think when we started the museum, you know, I had way too many civilian accounts and quotes on the wall and things I wanted to put in about the civilians. And so we just have some cases that highlight some of the different uh, things in our collection that are really interesting. Um, uh, we have in our collection the original letter written by John Rupp on July 19th, 1863, written to his sister-in-law in Baltimore about the situation during the battle and how he was trapped in his basement uh, on Baltimore Street and the Southern Army captured the town and they were firing bullets up the street and Union soldiers were firing back and he was in his basement and he was scared to death and didn't know what to do and it's a lengthy letter and it's one of the best early accounts of the fighting in the streets of the town during the battle and so we have the original letter on display. Of course most people will know that Jenny Wade was the only civilian mm. to be killed during the actual fighting. And Jenny uh, died in a house on Baltimore Street, not far from John Rupp, when a bullet went through the side door of the house. And he actually mentions in, her le in the letter that she was killed while she was making bread mm. uh, for the soldiers, which is a real good early source for that. But um, Jenny, we have an artifact that's really interesting was given to us uh, by a local family and they maintain that it's a candlestick that was used to hold a candle uh, after the battle when the carpenter was making a coffin for Jenny Wade's body. So we have the candlestick on display. We have a, um, a sword, uh, I'm, I should say we have a, a revolver. Uh, and a sword that was given to us by the Myers family on High Street. And the story is that Peter Myers um, saw a horse 
outside and a confederate got off of it and ran down the street and he ran out and stole the guy's pistol off of his saddle and he kept the pistol and after the battle they found the sword in the well of the house uh, behind the house and so um, we have a cartridge box found by a girl on uh, Chambersburg Street. We have a table uh, from Lydia Leister's house. We have a rolling pin that was used by a um, uh, local family to make bread for the wounded soldiers. We have um, a book that was owned by William Bliss. Uh, of course, on the third day of the battle, the Bliss farm was burned to the ground by Union soldiers because Southerners were using it as a sharpshooter's nest. And of course, this book, um, you know, survived the fire and um, was given to us uh, as a donation. Uh, we have um, a couple really interesting things. We have a um, mirror uh, with a hole in it from a bullet that was owned by a family on Carlisle Street. We have a scarf that was given to a local girl by a Union soldier the night before the battle. And we have a musket, a flintlock musket, and a cane that were owned by John Burns, the civilian who fought in the first day's battle and was wounded in the fighting. And although that was not the one he used in the battle, uh, it was a flintlock musket that was owned by him. Oh, and um, we have a really interesting uh, piece. We have this flag that was made by a local family. It's a handmade flag to look like a southern flag. And the family flew this outside their house to show the southerners who were passing by that they sympathized with their cause yeah. and that then maybe the southerners would not ransack or damage their property mm -hmm. like they were to other people around. Um, so uh, I, I think it didn't work. I think they did lose uh, um, uh, stuff during the battle. But this house was on uh, Iron Springs Road uh, near Fairfield. We have uh, Confederate currency on display here that was um, given to a local family in exchange for a meal near Cashtown. And we have some items on display from uh, Caledonia, uh, iron furnace that was destroyed on June 26 by the rebel forces before they marched towards Gettysburg and uh, owned by Thaddeus Stevens. So wow. it's kind of interesting. This is amazing. And, and one thing I'm looking at here as I look mm -hmm. at this display next to this uh, makeshift flag is uh, it says early demand for Kendall Hart. Am I pronouncing that correctly? Yeah, David Kendall Hart. Kendall Hart's reply. So basically the story is, you know, most people, well, a lot of people don't realize that mm -hmm. the battles fought on the first three days of July, but the Friday prior to the battle, part of the Southern Army passed through Gettysburg on their way to York. General Juber early entered the town, and uh, when he entered the town, he sat near a pump near the square, and he wrote out a demand for supplies that he expected the townspeople to make. 7,000 pounds of bacon. I'm just going to throw that out there. Yeah. 60 barrels of flour. <laughs> and he wants uh, 1,000 pounds of salt, 10 bushels of onions, 1,000 pairs of shoes, and 500 hats. Yep. So he does ask for shoes. And he also, <laughs> I think he has a note on there, too, that he wants or, uh, two pounds of M&Ms in every different color. <laughs> yeah, that's right. So, um, you know, there's different versions of what he asked for, but we have the original note up there. And this note and the reply by the president of the town council, David Kendall Hart, is on loan from the Gettysburg National Military Park. 
It was owned by the Kendall Hart family from the time of the battle up until, I would say, 2000, mm -hmm. maybe 2005, when the family finally sold it, and eventually it became the property of the Gettysburg National Military Park, and it's on loan here. But basically, Kendall Hart was the president of the town council, got mm -hmm. the note from Juba early, and then wrote a letter back and said, I'm sorry. You know, there's no way we can fulfill all your needs. We'll open up some of the shops you can look in, but we don't have the supplies because they've been sent out of town because we knew you were coming. Yes. And then Kendall Hart got supposedly John Burns to deliver the note because John Burns worked for Kendall Hart as a cobbler. And um, supposedly it was John Burns. And then Kendall Hart left town, snuck out of town, and then come back for a few days just in case there was any retaliation. And apparently, early got them met the nose, like, whatever, you know, and then the next day they went about their way. But it's a neat, neat little story. The orders came at four o'clock for everyone to go to their cellars. Did you hear me? For God's sake, go in the house. The rebels are in the town. Get inside, now! You may now enter caught in the crossfire. The best seats are here and probably here if you guys want to fully take it in. Floor, the You'll see that the family's down below you. Um, and basically what you're going to hear is the Union retreat through Gettysburg on the first day of the battle and the chaos of the Confederates capturing the town. It's about as bad as it could have gotten for the civilians. I, saw, I, I was here a little while ago, and it was when the floorboards weren't even in, and I didn't see the holes coming through the walls as the shots were being fired and the windows breaking, and it was still so much to take in. And then, and then that part where the girl is screaming for her dolly, 
I mean, I, I don't know how anybody can walk out of this without chills running down their spine. Thank you. Yeah, that is, we wanted to really do justice to how terrifying this was. Jeff Shera wrote the script to it. He really is just a master of, of telling a story. And so he took different pieces of different stories that we thought would resonate. And then, uh, and then when you walk out, you're in the aftermath. <laughs> I think you mentioned this a while back. Um, there will be a warning. Yes, there's a content warning on the front. We'll also have a docent out in the front um, to kind of set the tone. We all had ideas that we put towards it down. And uh, Indra had a lot of ideas, obviously. You know, um, you know I, I guess uh, I'm not so much into the immersive experiences. I was always into the quotes of the people. So I kind of supplied a lot of the quotes that he changed into really good narrative. But uh, I, I, the dog is my idea. Except in my story, I think, my initial story, I think the dog dies in my, my yeah, story. Wow. The dog oh, you're <laughs> <laughs> we thought that would be a little too much. <laughs> Well, you always have to put a, a dog in there dying somewhere because whenever, you whenever you're watching, like a, a crime show on TV, oh, yeah, the they kill person after person. But then when they kill the dog, Everybody's, that's when you yes, lose right. sleep. It's like, why did they have to kill the dog? That's right. So these are actually Tim. Tim, do you yes. want to explain the wall here? Um, well, we wanted to. I guess we wanted to, the people when they went into the house to just think they were going to a house. When they come out, they can see that the house had been battered by the battle. And so we had, you know, uh, kind of bullet holes placed in the wall. And um, we were going to take some bullets from our collection and put them in there, but um, we thought they might be damaged. So these are actual bullets that I have, I found myself. These are from my personal uh, stock of bullets I found over the years, either eyeballing them or with my metal detector, hospital sites around the town. But um, uh, so the. Now, people might look at it and think, oh, come on, that's a little too much. Houses weren't that badly damaged during the battle. So then across here in our aftermath case, you can see we have a photograph of the stock house on Washington Street taken uh, in October of 1863, November 1863. And you can kind of see battle damage on the building uh, and how bad some of these buildings were damaged. And then we have bullet holes in a bed. We have bullet holes in a sign from the street. We have, uh, you know, wood from the battlefield that had bullets, you know, embedded in it. And we have relics and artifacts from the aftermath of the battle on display. So they can kind of visually see that we're not exaggerating too much. Well, thank you so much. Um, of course, we've been here with Tim Smith, the Director of Education. I believe that's your formal title. Yep, in history. Master of everything. But thank you very much. It's oh, just welcome. been a pleasure. Um, I, I personally, this has been something that has been very exciting to see. Um, and, and when I say from the ground up, it's nothing by what you've seen. But like just in the you know periodic visits I've had uh, over the past year, it's just been amazing to see and and, and to see from you know just the beams at their bare core to where this is right now where people can get this this just full immersion into Adams County and beyond it's just it's amazing thank you for listening to the destination Gettysburg podcast produced and hosted by Rick Kennis with thanks to our special guest 
No part of this material may be reproduced without written permission. Get inspired for your visit to Adams County, Pennsylvania at DestinationGettysburg.com. <laughs>